Welcome to The Yoga Voice, a podcast by City Yoga, School of Yoga and Health. Our guests discuss how the contemporary practice of this ancient art transforms the lives of individuals and communities in the Midwest and beyond. City Yoga has been a center for the practice of yoga and yoga teacher training since opening in 2002. Join us as we explore how yoga inspires and transforms. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Yoga Voice. Dave Sims here. And as promised, I've got an exciting episode for you today. It's part two with Todd Norian. He's an acclaimed international yoga teacher, musician, author. We're going to dig a little deeper into his upcoming book, Tantra Yoga, Journey to Unbreakable Wholeness. And we touched on it in our first interview, and there's so much depth in there that we didn't get a chance to dive in. So I'm excited for all of our listeners here. This is incredible, the level of teaching that um, Todd has encompassed in this book and some courses that he offers. But he's been been a longtime practitioner of yoga. He's been teaching since the 80s. He lived 13 years in an ashram. He studied with some amazing scholars from around the world. So he just has a depth in his seeking of knowledge and a depth in his experiences with the teaching. So the experiential learning side of Todd is incredible. For those that you've been to his trainings or workshops or classes, you'll know that. So without too much delay, I'm going to get us right into it. So I will make a note that if you haven't listened to part one, I'd encourage you to pause this one and go back Listen to part one. We get a lot of Todd's uh, journey, his yoga journey, to lead him up to the point where he was writing the book and some of the experiences, pivotal experiences along the way. So you don't want to miss that. And look for the book to be at the publishers, um, available bookstores at uh, Todd's website and online at your Amazon and such places in June of 2021. So just right about right about now as this podcast comes out. So sit back and enjoy a listen. All right. Welcome Todd Norian back to the Yoga Voice. So good to see you here. How are you today? Good, Dave. Great to be back and great to see you too. Yeah. I mean, this was a little longer delay from our part one to part two than, but that's life. And it's just so great to see you and catch up, you know, earlier before we started recording. I, um, yeah, I know. I'm just really excited to hear your, what's going on in your life and the deeper uh, dive into the book. Uh, Just to remind our listeners of if, uh, if you haven't listened to part one, you know, stop this, stop this podcast and go back and hear it because you got a whole rich dose of, of Todd's, Todd's life that led him up to the point where he just wrote this book that we're going to d- dive deep into today. And that's the uh, Tantra Yoga Journey to Unbreakable Wholeness. It's a, a memoir and there's, it's so rich with teaching I'm so excited. It's, it's, uh, you know, it's like at the press now getting ready to 
hit the bookshelves and the Amazons and the Todd has a, a, a pre-order on his website. All that stuff will be in the podcast notes. So you'll be able to, you know, know where you can go and find the book. Um, we wrapped up last talk with a, um, um, a kind of the foundations of Ashaya Yoga, who Todd is the founder of. And we, then we touched briefly on the Ananda Tandava, which we can kind of circle back to that deeper topic later. But so maybe a good way to um, pick back up, and it also relates to earlier on in the book, is the, um, you know, a little bit about philosophy of Ashaya Yoga and that description of non-dual Shaiva Shakti Tantra philosophy that as, as it resonates with you and, um, and transition that into the uh, what about this philosophy is going to really support society in today's world of all these confusing points of view. So shall we start, just jump right in and start there? Sure. <laughs> um, it's a delight to be back and to be sharing with you. It's just like we're old friends. I've known you for several years now, and we've actually been in, in each other's presence in, in some trainings together, actually at your yeah. studio. Mm -hmm. So um, it's really nice. Um, so I'm starting in a place of feeling very grateful. And when I think, you know, back to sort of like my life tra trajectory and then coming to sort of the apex of putting the four decades of my studies and teachings together into a method that Ashaya uh, didn't just like pop out of a hat. It, it was really developed through um, my in-depth study of a variety of different methods and a, a variety of different philosophies. And um, along the way, I started studying with yogic scholars and it's, it's different studying with a scholar than it is studying with a teacher. I mean, the teachers are, you know, absolutely necessary and we love them and we got to have the teachers. And I found that the scholar there, they come at the yoga tradition from a historical perspective and they kind of put bookends on my more experiential knowledge of the practice. Cause I, Oh, I so love the spirit of yoga and the way it makes me feel and all the practices and touching the, the highest heights of depth of, of consciousness. You know, I used to feel like I was on the cutting edge of consciousness every day. I mean, I still sort of feel that way in, in, in a certain kind of way, but learning some of the history and some of the distinctions um, really whetted my mental appetite to understand my experience of yoga more. So maybe I can just talk a little bit about some of the distinctions that were meaningful for me. And of course, I'm not a scholar. And so you're going to hear sort of my views, which brings us to Tantra. Okay. Hey, that, that sounds like a great starting point. One um, audio tech thing, the your mic on the cord is brushing against your jacket. Gotcha. Your, your, and that that's creating a little, little um, distortion. So we'll watch that, but okay. sound, you sound great. So yeah, let's just All right. 
charge on in there. <laughs> Good. How's how's the sound now? Is it perfect? Yeah. Because I'm going to need to move a little bit this way, but as long as there's not a friction with the mic, I should be fine. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And the foundation of Ashaya philosophically is um, a general tantra. And I'm saying that because there's so many different kinds of tantras. I'll go a little bit more in depth into that. But specifically, um, known as the non-dual Shaiva Shakta Tantra. Mm -hmm. So Shaiva meaning uh, of Shiva, which is another name for grace. And Shakta is another name for Shakti which is the sort of the, the, um, the power of consciousness. So if Shakti is consciousness itself, if Shiva is consciousness itself, then Shakti is the power of consciousness. They're inseparable. Like you can't have the power of consciousness without consciousness itself. And the consciousness itself needs the power to be experienced. It's very much like... Um, Shiva would be like the sun, you know, the sun in the sky, and that Shakti are the rays of the sun. Shiva is the river itself. Shakti is the current of the river. Um, and they're so inseparable. It's said that Shakti is the face of Shiva. When we think about that, it puts a face on the abstract the undifferentiated energy becomes differentiated as uniquely you with your physical features. You are a one of a kind. We're all one of a kind. There's no one like any of us anywhere from all time past and all time going into the future. And so each one of us are the crystallizations of the divine's desire to know itself. And that's why we practice. Well, if I practice yoga, sort of the prize of practice is knowledge. It's not attaining some power, ability to read minds, or even have any kind of control over yourself. It's self-knowledge. Even Patanjali warns us, you know, in the third chapter, which is the Vibhuti, um, uh, uh, let's see, what is it called? The... Um, Pada, yeah. Yeah, Vibhuti Pada is sort of the magical powers. And he says in there, you know, don't get enamored with these magical powers. They will come to the yogi who practices, you know, but they're not the goal. In fact, they can become the distraction. We practice to gain some kind of supernatural power. Tantra always puts it back in your own lap, you know. That's what non-dual means. There's not the natural and then the supernatural, it's all natural. In other words, these powers of insight, um, even if there are like magical powers that you can manifest things, whatever, it's, it doesn't exist somewhere outside of yourself because there's only one energy. There's one spirit. We could say there's one vibration that started even before the Big Bang. You know, the Big Bang was everything that was in potential, um, potential form became actualized. So we, we know that there had to be an imprint before Big Bang 
for anything to happen out of the Big Bang. So the Big Bang was already in existence in its subtle form. So the Tantra is like, well, where does it start? You know, Buddhists will say, well, it starts with nothing. You know, the Tantric, well, you know, early yoga, early Buddhism compared to Tantra Buddhism, Tantra yoga, which is more of a later evolution, is that, no, there was uh, the potential universe before the Big Bang. So either way you look at it, from the void side or from the absolutely full side, which we come to see are actually the, the same things, but seen from different perspectives, that it's, it's really this desire to know itself. So we could say that the universe comes into ex- existence out of its own longing to know itself. And the way I talk about it in the book is, for instance, your eyes have never seen your face. The one universal energy needs the reflection to see itself. Unless you have shrimp eyes, your eyes come out and they circle around until they can see yourself. (laughs) And on a good day, I can see the tip of my nose. You have to have a fairly long nose to do that. Um, So this idea that we exist as the reflection of the infinite unbounded energy, which is part of who we are, is the way the universe comes to know itself. So the moon is reflecting the light of the sun. We can't look directly at the one. We can't look at the sun. We'll burn our eyes. It's too bright. So we see the reflection of the light of the sun in all things manifest. So that's why, like, you want to get to know yourself? Just enter a committed relationship. (laughs) You'll find out more about yourself than you really ever cared to know. (laughs) Of course, if you stay in that relationship. (laughs) Um, But that's the value, you know, of the reflection. We want to get, we're here to get that reflection. Um, So, and then we see ourselves in the reflection. So the non-dual means that there's one energy. There's not a supernatural over there and a natural here. Now, the way that yoga was brought to the West and how it was taught was from the classical yoga traditions. And the classical traditions, you know, the first yogi that, that came West and spoke in, I don't know, the late 1800s was a Swami Vivekananda. So it, he was in, in, you know, the... Um, you know, the Vedantic style yoga, which was a renunciate path. And oftentimes, not every renunciate path, because there's a strong non-dual energy uh, in all the yogas, but typically it's taught in a dualistic fashion, which means that the universe is reducible into two parts. In non-dual, the universe is irreducible into one part. And in this one part cannot be divided. And that's the one energy of the one spirit. But when you can divide it into two parts, then that's called duality, dualistic. And what that means is many of the renunciate paths are that because we have this world which is seen 
as samsara, which is uh, the disease of worldliness. It's described in a lot of ways, Mm -hmm. but I like that description, disease of worldliness, because it's a huge put down of worldliness, (laughs) that life really is suffering, and that the way out is through yoga. So here are all these one-way trip tickets, one-way mantras to help you transcend the world to get to nirvana. Mm -hmm. Nirvana is the sense of voidness, like without quality, the near, it means without. And there are these paths, more of the traditional classical yoga paths that are called renunciation. What is that? It's to renounce the world, that there's, it's a rejection of the world with the goal of dissolving our individuality, that our individuality is really this great illusion, the illusion of self. It does not exist. So we do these practices to get up and out and never come back. I call those the one, <clears throat> one, uh, one-way trip ticket. <laughs> and there's a whole set of practices and mantras that are considered renunciatory mantras. Mm-hmm. And um, one of my, my teachers that I'm studying with, actually for a long time, but, but now is um, Paul Mother Ortega. And he talks about the part of the confusion in today's uh, practice of yoga is that teachers are giving renunciate mantras to householder practitioners. Mm -hmm. And so we have this conflict of we're doing practices to get us up and out of the world, but we're deeply immersed in the world. Mm -hmm. And so Tantra comes along and says, hey, instead of doing the one trip, the sort of one-way trip ticket, because we recognize in the non-dual world that everything in the natural physical universe is an expression of spirit that's not superior and not inferior Mm -hmm. that our individual nature is neither inferior or superior to the divine but that it's the reflection of that divinity in us that here's a practice called we live in the world and instead of seeing samsara as the disease of worldliness, which is basically desire is all pain in disguise. So now it's like, no, we don't want any desire at all. Tantra flips that all around and says, hey, desire is the very source of the solution because it's the universe that desired to become known that made you to be you through desire. So we come to understand in Tantra, desire is not the problem. The problem maybe is that we don't desire enough. We don't want it badly enough to do the sacrifice that's needed to develop ourselves. So we come to the fact that yoga today mostly is a householder practice. We're practicing yoga in the midst of our very busy lives, running businesses, being in relationships, raising a family, paying rent and all that. I mean, that's the common experience. 
compared to the renunciates that renounce the world, their family, their traditions. I, I did that. You know, when I went to a 10-day course when Kripalu was an ashram and stayed for 13 years, I did everything, even changing my name, which was the renunciation of my birth-given name and all the associations that go along with that. Because I was starting a new life. I was reborn into a new life that had this trajectory of erasing my past mm-hmm. and stepping back into a transcendent space. And part of our practices was to work on the supernatural. In fact, our guru's guru was trying to get to what's called the divine body, which is immortality in the body. You know, and we see or we hear tales of stories of great beings who achieved divine body. I mean, we could say that the Christ who rose again would be considered, you know, achieving divine body. Maybe the Buddha and Moses. And um, I, in my book, I actually have a, a, a quotation from one of the Kripalu uh, swamis who wrote all about the divine body. Um, and he lists um, different uh, times in history when someone achieved that divine body. But, and, and I questioned it in my book. I said, well, was this real? And I said, well, it's not for me to judge. But from my study of Tantra is that we come to find the life that we have right now that's unfolding in front of our eyes now is the divine life. It's a matter of how we see it. It's a matter of our perspective, how to pay attention to see the light in everything. And then we come to the basic yogic attitude, which everything in life is for our awakening. So the householder path is the path that I teach. And it's how to sort of evolve our spirits you know, reaching towards greater and greater enlightenment. Not that there's an ever end, there's not an end to that vision of enlightenment that, oh, once you got it, you're done. And why would we want that? Because we want to achieve perfection so we don't have to come back to this world of suffering. Mm -hmm. Again, we're instantly in that path of I want out. Mm -hmm. And Tantra is always going to say, no, 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 you want in. So Tantra, instead of suppressing or turning away from life, turning away from our challenges and and our pain and suffering, which it is, we transcend into, you know, someplace that's better over there in a dualistic world. We turn to face our life, to face the sun. You know, most of the times we have our back to the sun. The light is shining on us, but we have our back to, we've turned our back. Mm -hmm. And the Tantra that I teach now is really how to turn around to really face our life, you know, be in our lives in a, in a deeply responsible way, effective way. Like, um, I think I talk about, um, 
the idea of the Shiva Nataraja, which holds all the secrets of the Tantra in this one statue, the dancing Lord, dancing Shiva, um, is that he's dancing the eternal rhythms of the universe. And he's surrounded by grace. There's a circle, the Agni Mandala is the circle of fire, that we are unlimited beings. We have full potential. And each one of the, the circles, they're, they're depicted with fires. And in, in most of the statue, there's 50 or 54. And it represents all the letters of the Sanskrit alphabet, which represents all possibilities. Mm. Um, and we think about why, you know, why is the Shiva Nataraja dancing? And part of it is because he's filled with so much joy. He just can't sit still. But there's another perspective. Maybe he's dancing so wildly because he is suffering. So he has so much anxiety. This guy has ADHD like, <laughs> like you would not believe. And we come to see that his dance is the fullness of the full spectrum of who we are. Mm -hmm. That we dance both the suffering in life grief, the pain, and the loss, that's almost unbearable, as well as the highest level of bliss and joy that's exhilarating. And I think, you know, the metaphor for me is that we're here to learn how to dance with the full spectrum, not get out, let's not do a yoga practice that gets us up and out, you know, or let's just be positive. There's, there's a thing now called, uh, what is it, toxic positivity? Mm -hmm. yeah. where you just put a happy face on all of the difficult, challenging emotions and you, you turn away from it. And we know from our practice that yoga is more than that. It's about turning once again and many times in a lifetime, maybe many times in a day, to turn to face life, to face the light mm -hmm. and to let life reveal a deeper meaning to us. Yeah. So that we can grow ourselves and we can expand beyond our own self-created limitations. Yeah. And we start to fulfill the true reason and purpose for which we have come. And when the yogi discovers that reason, like, why am I here? Oh, my God, life gets so exciting and mm -hmm. so very good. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, and tap, tapping, yeah, there's a tapping into a, a flow beyond our, uh, part of ourselves, beyond ourselves, I guess. Mm -hmm. Would you want to read that paragraph in the book on why she would dance? <laughs> sure. Since, I mean, you just summarized it really well, but this will give our audience a nice little taste of your writing because it's um, so beautifully written. Mm. Thank you. Okay, so um, the heading is, why does Shiva dance? This is the first question you have to ask. The answer for the play of it. As we saw earlier in the definition of Leela, play is for its own sake. The dance represents the Big Bang when the infinite singular universe burst into form, becoming the infinite finitude of form. Before the Big Bang, before materiality, the universe was existence itself without attributes or differentiation. 
it was all just one soup of pure potentiality. Then one day, out of its own delight, for the very play of it, the Big Bang happened. And the undifferentiated universe of oneness became differentiated and diverse. Unity concealed itself while diversity revealed itself. As I mentioned at the beginning of chapter 11, the universe, the one song, like universe, the one song became the multiverse, the many songs. That is so beautifully written. And, I, and it really expresses what you, you just shared with us in that unity concealed itself while diversity revealed itself. And, and like, I think we see that in nature, you know, we see that, yeah, that's such a beautiful teaching. So thank you for, for reading that. Um, so what's the, uh, uh, I mean, you really described the householder path versus the renunciate really well. And that it made me think a little bit about a lot of traditional yogas will jump into Purusha and Prakriti of that duality. And that it seems like the Tantra philosophy just, it goes, goes much beyond that. Um, how, would you, how would you say is the best way to differentiate these paths in that um, yeah, as like baby steps towards a non-dual path if someone has been kind of locked into a dualistic thinking. Sure, sure. I guess in any path where emotions are shamed, where desire is shamed, where worldly pleasure is shamed, seen as just the invitation for pain, I would be cautious that we have our five senses. We're here to delight the senses. We're here to, instead of get out of our experience, we learn how to have the experience we're having. So anything that takes us away from the self would be considered a transcendent path or renunciate type of a path. And anything that brings us more in touch with ourself, our senses, nature, as an expression of this divine would be more the householder tradition that we're not trying to, you know, like yoga would be getting into the body in order to get out of the body. <laughs> yeah. That the tantra is going to say, get into the body because the body is divine, as are the emotions, as are the full spectrum. In fact, do we have to call emotion positive or negative? What if we were to call emotions normal and beautiful? And we have uncomfortable emotions, for sure. And then we have the happy, comfortable emotions. And we are the full spectrum of all that. So um, the householder mantras are considered round-trip mantras, mm -hmm. where they take you maybe to the peak of the mountain in a transcendent state, but always bring you back. Um, when I do my meditation practices now, I meditate in the morning because my meditation is the preparation for my day compared to let's meditate so we don't have to face this day. The, my meditation would be like the escape from the day. And I'm not saying that's wrong or bad because I think all yoga is here to serve and to make life better. 
even uh, we could say the, the roots of the tantric path, we could go back to the Vedas and then Patanjali's yoga, which uh, obviously is a dualistic state because he says that true enlightenment is when you isolate the self from nature, when you have a very clear distinction, when the property, which is our material self, our body and our mind no longer touches spirit. And so in certain ways, that approach, which has everything to do like still the mind because the thoughts, the mind, those are the vrittis, right? We want to transcend the vrittis because vrittis are the um, movements of consciousness. They're really the disturbances. Then you have all the kleshas, which are the um, afflictions of the mind. But Tantra is going to turn that around to say this idea of um, yogas chitta vritti nirodaha, which is Patanjali's second sutra of the first chapter, that, that really says yoga is the cessation of the modifications of the mind. Yoga is the stilling or stopping of the vibrations of the mind. Tantra is going to say those vrittis that we're trying to dis, um, extinguish, vrittis are the forms that consciousness takes. When I heard that teaching, my eyes opened. I went, whoa, a new distinction. We're not trying to stop the mind. We're trying to see the thoughts. We want to see those thoughts. Now, certainly, we don't want to be carried off by our thoughts. Right. Then meditation doesn't happen. Let's just open our eyes and start going down the to-do list. Like, mm -hmm. why do the to-do list with your eyes closed? Just open your eyes and go down your to-do list, yeah. you know? <laughs> but... Yeah. Uh, so the meditation includes this idea of the mind becomes more calm, mm -hmm. but we're not trying to stop the thoughts. Mm -hmm. We shift our awareness either to the breath or to stillness or to the mantra itself. Mm -hmm. And um, that's part of the Ashaya practice of meditation is, you know, I, I use mantra meditation because mantras, uh, certain mantras, they have to be a specific bija mantra called the Hridaya bijas, which are a classification of mantras called the heart seed mantras, which are the silent mantras. Um, some are given as an initiation, which I also do. Others are more of uh, public domain heart seed mantras, like Hamsa is one of the mantras that's more of the public yeah. domain. Anyway, these mantras serve as keys that give you access to the indwelling current that carries you to the heart and to this space between our individual self and our spirit self. That there's something about that threshold where you find the place between where the wave becomes the ocean. And we're not trying to distinguish the wave I mean, uh, extinguish the wave. We're not trying to eliminate the individual life wave. There are some paths that are really saying you really need to get rid of that life wave. Mm -hmm. like that's what's in the way. Tantra turns it all around and says, no, no, no. The life wave is the gateway to the ocean. So it's, it's kind of a shift of perspective. So it almost seems like it's, you're saying 
and when I think about like my meditation practice, well, I'll often do a sort of observing the thoughts. I mean, and you know, there may be a breath focus and there's obviously stillness and, um, but as a long time meditator, I know that when I, when I just, rather than resist thoughts, random thoughts, I observe the thoughts and they dissolve mm. and versus observing them and creating a story and spending a little story about them. Right. Um, just uh, noticing them with a sort of uh, general curiosity is that then they, they tend to just fade. And, and the idea that I gathered from uh, Patanjali's yoga sutras as, as, as those, those uh, waves settle, then we actually reach a point where we do see that reflection, an un, uncloudy, crystal clear reflection of the true self that symbolizes unity and mm. into in a sense of oneness. So absolutely. And that's, um, yeah. So that's, that's kind of how I've been viewing, viewing the, the meditation practice and the, it seems like all the, what I've studied in, in, in yoga and, and it sounds like it kind of lines up with what you're saying is that, dualistic paths lead to non-dualism at some level. <laughs> well, I, I think a better distinction is to relate it to freedom because mm. both the dualistic and the non-dual seek freedom. I think we can all agree, and I've heard the scholars all agree that yes, freedom, except dualistic paths our freedom from Prakriti and Tantra would be freedom through Prakriti. Mm. And it's, it's, it's such a sort of hairs with difference of subtlety. Mm. It is very subtle, but it's really more about the approach. And that approach has a deeper root into the belief of who we are and what the universe actually is. And if you believe that the universe are two things, there's property, the world of suffering here and the spirit out there, then you want to be free from, you know, we want to reach freedom by, by being free from the mind or free from desire to reach the freedom um, and then, of course, if you're free and you have a desire, then you kind of fall from grace. I've done that many times <laughs> when I was going, when I was living at the ashram and really practicing this whole world of samsara as, as um, desire is, is bad. Um, I was living a spiritual life shrouded in shame, and I just didn't know it. Mm -hmm. um, and my joy in finding Tantra was that all of a sudden there was a value for being imperfect. In fact, I shifted from saying I'm striving for perfection. It would be, I am perfectly imperfect just as I am. And this idea of we're, 
we're, we're not trying to thrive in a perfect world. We're thriving because we're able to embrace both our imperfection and our perfection uh, at, at, with, with equal value. Mm-hmm. You know? well, it's, it's like owning it. You know, you're owning your imperfection. You're owning your thoughts your, versus trying to get them to go away or yeah. dissolve. Or, and, so that, and even more than that is we want to see our imperfections as part of our character, part of our strength. It's we're all walking around as Prada sweaters. You know, the, <laughs> the, the Prada brand had have, um, you know, premeditated designed flaws in them that give them their uniqueness and their beauty. Mm. And to see ourselves as divine beings as we're each unique in our character and in our imperfections. And those imperfections are not flaws at all. They're actually what makes us who we are. And, and that's another way of embracing this idea that everything in life is for our awakening. We all come from a past of trauma, a, a past of deep challenge, some more than others, but obviously there's a lot of challenge. And how to say yes to all of that and see how the past is not something I want to erase, but it's something I want to face because my past has given me the wisdom to become the person that I am today. And instead of the be here now, which is basically putting the now moment as superior over there then or over there in the future, you know, at some point, the Tantra is going to really hold these three sort of veins of existence that all affect our karma as equal. I want to live in the past as much as I want to live in the now, as much as I want to use this now moment to envision a future uh, worthy to live into. Um, So it's seeing the non-dual with reference to the whole span of time, Mm. you know. That's interesting. And a thought came to mind as you we're talking about that uh, like we, we all have experienced trauma and that um, a lot of the conversations of late have, have been like in this past year or so talk about um, how multi-generational trauma affects who we are today. Mm-hmm. And um which I think in this lot of yogic philosophy, when it talks about karma or samskara or you know patterns, there uh, I read this study. It's been a while back now, but it was like a uh, the cherry blossom study where they took these. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but they took mice and they they. Uh, electrified the floor so that made them get a little shock and dance around. And then they infused the scent of uh, cherry blossoms. Mm. So they conditioned them to when they would just not charge the floor, but just um, spray the smell, they, this, they would cause the 
stress response to the, the mice. And so they did this with the mice and they took them out and they put them in a population of other mice that had no part of that. And then the offspring of these mice, when they smelled cherry blossoms, they cowered, they, they went into stress response. And it, was, it was only, you know, the mice that were from these fathers, they were male, you know, male mice that mm-hmm. was passing this through their DNA. And they, they were able to trace this, I forget how many, 10 or 12 generations of mice. Wow. That ha- so it's, it's this big topic of epigenetics, but it, it made me think of yogic philosophy on how we uh, maybe carry trauma or uh, patterns from past lives, if not from our own, you know, DNA from ancestry. So, and and how that plays out in life today. Um, it's a fascinating topic, but but what I hear you saying is like owning that, like just embracing that. Yeah, this is. Uh, this is what I'm going to to uh, explore or um, not so much hold on to, but honor as a part of who we are rather than trying to avoid it or numb it out or that you mentioned yeah. toxic positivity and that, and actually that, that kind of leads to a question where, um, in this philosophy and teaching you're doing, how do you, how do you suggest people stay positive without going into some toxic positivity when they're dealing with that that whole um, depression, like dark negativity? Um, yeah, it's it, you know when the world seems like it's in in turmoil. And so how do you? How would you go about that? (laughs) I close my eyes and meditate and transcend. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's such a great question you're asking. And I've been contemplating that. um, And I don't, I haven't really found a way out of it. Um, But I'm seeing like there's so much deception and so much division. I'm thinking, politically, um, not knowing what to believe, how lying is just sort of the normal way of, of doing politics and the whole idea of the power grab and being completely power hungry for position rather than really serving the needs of everybody and diversity and equality and all that. And I mean, it's partly human nature to be greedy and to be so filled with fear that um, we make horrible decisions. We harm other people by securing our job. Um, I, it's, I've, I'm losing a lot of faith <laughs> in government and in life in general. And it's not just our government. I'm seeing like the little wars that are not little wars, but the atrocities that are going on. And I just, I see it's like human nature is human nature. Mm-hmm. So I, I think, you know, for myself personally, I steep myself in a daily practice. I wash myself. I cleanse myself metaphorically through meditation and through practice so that I can become 
as clear a channel as I can be. And instead of running away from my fears, I turn towards them. And uh, there's a really wonderful book I'm reading now, and she has appeared on so many podcasts. Um, Susan David, she's a psychologist, and she wrote Emotional Agility. Um, I have it right here. Get unstuck, embrace change, and thrive in work and life. And uh, I would recommend it. I would recommend that to any of your listeners. And and she uh, was interviewed by Brene Brown on Brene's podcast, Dare to Lead, which I also highly, highly recommend. Yeah, that's a good one, um, yeah. Susan David, I, I just can't say enough about her approach is yogic. Her approach is tantric, although she doesn't probably know that. But um, it comes from research and science. And she says... Her way is the three C's. We want to approach our emotions, our uncomfortable emotions, or we could apply it to our mind or apply it to, you know, just difficult times in life. The first C is curiosity. Mm-hmm. Because curiosity lifts us. It gives us perspective. It gives us space from being drowned in the emotion itself. When we're having the emotion, we can't help ourselves. It's the way the human brain is designed. We are emotional beings before thinking beings because it's that instinct to survive that kicks in. You will protect yourself and your family before all else, before thinking. So just to be curious gives us a little bit of space from the difficult emotion. The second C is, let's see, compassion. And that is to have compassion for ourselves, which is acceptance, which is, um, compassion is really letting yourself be in the state that you're in. Uh, Sympathy is different. Sympathy is like, Uh, judging that state and you're really separate from it but compassion is you can feel and sense the pain and suffering in yourself and in others and there's a kind of uh in compassion there's and and there's a a longing uh to uh stop the pain there's a longing to do something about it so curiosity first compassion next and then courage. We need courage to walk through the fires of our life. We walk through the fires with fear in one hand and courage in the other. We're not trying to get rid of our fear because fear serves us. And fear is part of our instinctual presence, instinctual mind. But we want to walk forward without letting fear drive us. So I always say, like, I'm going to take the steering wheel now. I'm going to ask my fear to get in the back seat. We have to learn how to become the adult in a car full of screaming children, of ourselves, of our own minds, you know. And 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 it and it takes it it takes an immense amount of spiritual energy and self knowledge to do that. Otherwise. We're not gaining the wisdom of our emotions. Our emotions are the guidance system of the body. 
the emotion is alerting us that there's some need that's not being met. There's, there's something that needs to change here. Our problem is that we make emotions directives rather than data. They're meant to be data. They're giving us knowledge and wisdom. They're, they're pointing to a need that, that's not being met. You know, like I can go really deep into my grief from loss, which is, of course, that's we all experience that. Um, but if it lingers, if I continue to stay in that, maybe the data there is I'm needing company. I'm needing a friend. I'm needing to, to reconnect or I'm needing to embrace the positive qualities of this person, you know, to, to help me remember. Maybe my grief is saying, no, I need to remember who this person was for me or, or what that relationship gave me, even though the relationship had to end. Um, rather than making that emotion be the directive of how we're going to live, live our life. You know, if I'm feeling anger, then I'm just an angry person. I'm going to act out on that anger. No, the anger is always pointing to something more. There's some need not being met. There's like a feeling of, you know, injustice, like anger um, is needed to bring justice where it, it, it wasn't before. So anyway, I'm, I'm <laughs> inspired with reading this book. So that's all. Oh, fresh. Well, so, so Susan David, I'll put, I'll mention that in the notes. And what was the title of that book? Emotional Agility. Emotional Agility. Learning, and this is very tantric in a way, learning how to become agile in our emotions. Um, the blog that I recently did, it's one or two blogs ago, uh, on my website, I describe this whole thing about emotional rigidity and emotional fragility that you want to eventually get to emotional agility, our capacity to flow with our emotions rather than be so stuck in them or to bottle them, meaning that you put it over here. You're not going to deal with it. And that's where you know, toxic positivity is, is we have a negative emotion that we really do need to feel because it's trying to give us some wisdom and we bottle it or we put a happy face on it and said, you know, I'm not going to deal with that. Right. The, um, well, that makes me think of, um, I, I heard you, the cord scraping up against your shirt again, yeah, a little sorry. Bit, but sorry. that's all right. Um, but so this idea of grief as a, a perspective we have on emotions, strong emotions like grief. And it, it made me kind of think about what you talked about earlier in our cultures of shame and um, uh, different paths that want you to sort of deny what's going on and, and be happy or that toxic positivity. I think there's all those threads kind of weave together and what, mm. what I've discovered from, you know, reading some great books and, and, you know, I've had some pretty intense grief experiences in this lifetime. And that uh, one thing I read and tried to practice is this idea of, well, first of all, our, our culture tends to want to put grief in a box, you know, like you get four days of bereavement off from work and then you just, you yeah. know, like, like you, um, 
go through this so many step process and then you move on. And what I've discovered is that um, this teaching about the, the more we grieve represents the greater love we have for that loss. So that right. person, that relation, that situation where there's this idea of, of really embracing it, uh, embracing those emotions. And, and then there's a freedom with that. And then there's also, cause it's an absence of shame or any, um, right. you know, cause, cause we do as a culture tend to want to shut down uncomfortable emotions, you know, like, Oh, it'll be okay. You know, we yeah. attitudes, right. Where this is sort of the opposite of that. Like, no, this hurts. This sucks. I'm feeling it. And that, and um, having courage and holding fire to walk through it. And that's where, um, yeah, just what you were talking about kind of yeah. reminded me of that as a, as such a, um, it's a beautiful path mm. to um, go for yeah. evolve as human beings or spiritual beings. Yeah, that it's all spiritual, that even our emotions are spiritual. They're message, they're the guidance system of the body. And I loved what you said, Dave, about how the deeper the grief you have, reflects the depth of the love that you had for that person the the amount that you miss that person is it it says a lot about the depth of trust that you had with that person the the value the the support the um how much you maybe relied on that person so it's a reflection of the depth of love and paradoxically you know the more you push that away the longer it takes to get through it to actually you know, I, I don't really say move on anymore. I say move forward with the grief, but become, you know, functional with it. And the more we um, face it and let ourselves have those periods where we feel like we, we break down or we feel like we're falling apart. You know, in my courses, sometimes, you know, people, emotions come up and sometimes they, they don't want to feel it. And, and they say, you know, I, I'll say like, well, you know, what are you feeling right now? They'll say, oh, I don't want to feel my feelings because I might fall apart. And I'm saying, I think as yogis, we need to fall apart regularly (laughs) and let ourselves fall apart because ironically that falling apart creates, I mean, when it's, when it's done with support, you know, because we don't want to fall apart and then drown in the emotion itself. Mm -hmm. But when we fall apart, meaning we let ourselves feel the depth of that feeling that we get through it quicker, that we allow the grief to surface, to flow through us and deliver its message. And every time when I've let myself have tears like that, like my dad died about a year and a half ago on Halloween. And um, I didn't cry until I got to the funeral and I just let it, out I couldn't hold it back and right after that it was like a huge storm cloud after I let the cloud rain inside of me the clearest most vast beautiful sky opened up inside of me and I heard his voice he was there like speaking to me teaching me and loving me and I acknowledged that inside myself as him like I had a connection to, to his spirit. I don't know how to describe it. Um, and I was able to move forward more quickly. 
And that's what I mean like by emotional agility. How skilled are we? Like you say you're a yogi, but how skilled are you at flowing with all aspects of yourself? And I love this idea. And that's what a shy is. It's a path of body, mind, and heart. You know, how are we in the sort of day-to-day experience of our lives to really digest it and be fully present with all that is? It's, it's really a good contemplation. You know? <laughs> yeah. And following the path of the heart is like the premise of what you're teaching, right? Yeah. Yeah, because inside the heart is really the source of everything. The source mm-hmm. of the universe, the source of the entire self is there as an energy deep in, deep in the heart. Yeah. And that, um, um, on a little, little lighter note, because <laughs> it sure. reminded me of this path of the heart, and I, in, in reading in your book, the, you did such a nice job of describing a uh, situation where you you bought a house. Uh, maybe it was your first house. Yes. And um, would you want to share that story? Because the way it kind of culminated at the closing and everything, and like it was, I thought it was like a moving story about <laughs> um, a lot of different things, but. Oh, sure. Well, there's so many different parts to that. First of all, we made a list of all of our intentions for what, uh, this is when I was married, um, all of our intentions of, of the house that we wanted, you know, so it had to be far enough in the country that we had some land and, but close enough to a city or a town. Um, so we could have easy access to groceries and all that. And we had to be able to jog right out from our house. So it couldn't be on a busy road and, um, you know, just enough rooms, but, you know, modest house. So we made all these, these, um, intentions and, um, we just, we couldn't find it. And then we almost put a, a down payment down on another house, which was happening right around the corner from this house. And as we, um, almost signed the, uh, you know, sales agreement, we were driving away and we looked and we saw a house that we hadn't seen before. It said for sale by owner. And they had just put that sign up like two hours before. Wow. (laughs) And, um, you know, I, I had to go teach a class, but my wife said, I'm going to drop you off and I'm going back there. I'm going to, you know, call them. So she goes and, uh, anyway, it turns out to be the perfect house. And we end up um, uh, buying it. And there's a whole story about how we, how we actually bought it. But uh, one of the funny things was it was the perfect house. We had been living in um, the town of Lenox before, above the jewelry store. So we were in like, downtown Lenox. And our backyard was a parking lot. And there were restaurants all around us. And so in our intention list, we said, well, we want a house that has grass but we didn't say how much grass. <laughs> and so after we bought the house, we looked around and realized we bought sort of a grass farm. There was over an <laughs> acre of grass everywhere. And the house was like this little small part on the property. And then of course we had to take care of the lawn and buy 
rider mower and then all the different kinds of mowers and weed whackers and everything you need for a house. And we were just yogis, you know, we were just like coming from living in an ashram. Anyway, it was uh, kind of a funny thing. So be careful uh, what you ask for, because you'll probably get it. Well, it reminds me of that, like you were trying to follow your heart and this like, well, this is what we're looking for. And, and, and then, yeah, that whole, um, be careful, <laughs> be careful what you ask for, like you said. Yeah. I, I thought that was really very telling as, cause that's so much, so many of us do that, you know, and, um, and I, and the, the way the house just kind of dropped in your lap, so to speak. And, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, it wasn't something that the realtors found for us, you know, because mm -hmm. it wasn't even on the market at the time that we were being shown all these other houses. Yeah. There's, there's so a lot of, a lot of grace. Yeah. There's grace. And then there was a, like a, uh, a teaching that you walked away from about, <laughs> about the grass to yeah. say the least. But uh, yeah. no, I, I find, I, I really enjoy the stories in your book that, uh, you know, bring, bring some of this, um, um, life experience out in the open. Um, there's that, um, and we talked about in the, in the last podcast with the, uh, um, you know, the gurus and betrayal and that sort of, do we touch a little bit on that sort of dark night of the soul um, and um, how what's beautiful that the path you took to becoming Ashaya Yoga as a teaching um, was not a, uh, you know, study with some scholars and then go develop a practice. It was like, it was like blood, sweat, and tears, um, and joy and happiness. And, yeah. but and embracing all of that seems to have led you to this path where we find this, um, the journey to the unbreakable wholeness. Right? I love the, I love the title and, yeah. and I love the, the way that you speak of that. Um, so one thing that, um, like we really didn't get to, well, so first of all, philosophically, is there any other things we want to touch on or parts of the book you'd like to share that, that bring home? I mean, there's so, this book is so rich for our listeners. It's over 400 pages. So well-written, beautiful quotes, beautiful teachings from Todd that I, yeah. Well, there's there's a section on um, more about the statue of Shiva Nataraja, which I say mm -hmm. is reveals the entire secret of the whole universe. And for Tantra yogis, it's really important to understand what some of the symbolism is there. Mm -hmm. And um, I mentioned about that the Nataraja is dancing and he can't sit still because the dance is filled with bliss and joy, as well as anxiety and ADHD and every, everything else. He's just dancing because there's just so much energy pulsing through him. I mean, he's the representation of the Big Bang in a way. 
that he is dancing the eternal rhythms of the universe into existence for the joy of it. And it's wonderful that the purpose of this whole thing is for the play of it. And what's beautiful about play is that it's Leela, which describes, you know, the play of life, the divine play. Leela actually means sport. And I like to think about sports as, well, there's, in sport, there's, there's like a kind of freedom and a boundary. Like if there's no goal line, there's no, there's no game. There has to be an out of bounds for there be, to be any kind of game. So if you step out of bounds, there's a consequence, there's a penalty or something like that. And that Nataraja is telling us that life is full of freedom and boundary. And the way to access the heart is to create healthy self-boundaries as your way of sustaining your freedom. That if you go for freedom itself, you're going to run into problems. You have to develop boundary. In other words, we say yes to life, but we have to know when and how to say no. And Nataraja is always going to talk about the threshold, the place in the middle. He's dancing on one leg. Well, there's one leg of him that's grounded in the earth while the other one is in the dance of the ecstasy itself. He has one arm that crosses his heart. It's the arm of concealment. While the other hand is in the Abhaya Mudra saying, you are concealed. It's the nature of the heart. In other words, you can't know everything. In fact, we can only know about 25% of anything which means there's 75% of our life experience that will always be unknown. And the Abhaya Mudra is saying, and have no fear. So on one hand, we're concealed. The heart is concealed. The other hand, chill out. It's supposed to be that way. And what is concealed? The divine infinite potential is concealed within our own individual limitations. And that's that whole thing, like how to see the beauty of our imperfections, how to see the value of, the, of our past that has brought us, that has revealed the beauty of our present moment now. Um, and as much as there's an arm of concealment, there's the leg of revelation where he has lifted a leg and on the, on the hand of the arm that conceals his heart, it's, it's an arm that goes right in front of him. It's pointing to the answer to concealment. And it points to the lifted foot of grace. He's saying, grace is the reason concealment exists. And that's a really deep contemplation. Mm that when we open to the bigger energy, when we surrender, we could say, to the bigger energy, to grace, that our life gets revealed to us. If we try to get revealed, often it doesn't happen. Trying is lying. We tend to over-effort everything. But when we get ourselves out of the way in a specific way, then grace is what reveals mm. and the whole dance you know the one foot that he's dancing on stands on top of the back body of apasmara purusha which is the imp of forgetfulness mm -hmm. 
That's our ego. That's our, you know, our um, stubborn self, the part of us that can't let go. That's always holding on. That's, you know, possessive, fearful, greedy, uh, attached or uh, codependent, we could say. It's whatever it is that's limited. It's our addicted self in a way. But he's allowing the ego to live. He's not killing it. Mm-hmm. And he's lightly dancing on his back. In fact, the back body of this uh, ego provides the dance floor for the entire universal dance. So we could say that our ego is the foundation of the dance itself. The ego is what carries the karma. It's the dance floor for the whole dance. So instead of let's eliminate this ego, let's see if we can embrace it as the gift of embodiment itself. And what's so cool is that the eyes of Apasmara Purusha, which means away from remembering, forgetting, Mm -hmm. are cast up at the lifted foot of grace. So Nataraja is pointing from the arm of concealment. He's pointing down to the lifted foot of grace while the eyes of the ego are lifted up to the same lifted foot of grace. And they meet, the ego's eyes meets the energy, the shakti coming from the mudra of the hand where individual limited limited self meets universal unlimited self. And that space in between, like right in between those two, is the threshold of freedom. And it's, it's such a beautiful affirmation that whatever it is that we're going through, the joys, but also the challenges, are uniquely designed and orchestrated by grace to open our hearts, to give us the sometimes hard lessons we need to learn that we came here to learn you know it's the the bitter medicine that become this gateway to open the heart that we may live a life of happiness but even go beyond happiness to a life that we can truly say we're thriving on all levels i'm thriving in my business i'm thriving in my relationships I'm thriving in my spiritual practices that continue to open these doors, these gateways to further and further, deeper and deeper insights about my life that create deeper and deeper levels of calm. This, you know, to live in a non-anxious state where we have curiosity that creates this space from being so wrapped up, so tightly wound in our life, we can't even fall asleep at night. So I'm just really big on find, finding a philosophy and mine really landed with this non-dual Shiva Shakta Tantra, but a philosophy that empowers you to be you and to learn yeah. and that sees life as everything in life is for your awakening, that the, that the challenges give way to life-enhancing change that the stumbling blocks become stepping stones and that what we think is a setback is really a setup for a comeback. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So, so beautifully said and, uh, and that, you know, the, 
Shiva Nantaraj, so you see those murtis or statues often in yoga spaces. And uh, there's one on the shelf over there over my shoulder. <laughs> but um, yeah, that's such a powerful teaching. And you did mention the uh, Ananda Tandava at the end of our last podcast. Mm-hmm. Would you want to delve into some of that? Sure. So Ananda, we all know, is the word bliss. And Tandava means dance, so it means the dance of bliss. From the tantric perspective, what it's referring to is when you embrace wholly the state of your state. In fact, it means being almost possessed by the state of your state where you're not questioning your state, you're not questioning or doubting yourself, you're wholly there. It's like a state of samadhi, meaning that you're absorbed in whatever it is you're going through. And one of my teachers tells that the Ananda Tandava describes the experience of the yogi, which is to experience fury. Uh, wait, wait, let me let me get this, because these... these the order of these terms is really important to experience the wildness of the dance. Um, See, we want wildness without savagery, fury without anger and urgency without anxiety. And when you can't help but experience savagery, anger and anxiety, that's Tandava too. This is the path of radical affirmation. Mm. Saying yes to all of life. Yes. Well, that's in that radical affirmation is like how I try to live my life. And it's different than toxic positivity. <laughs> right? And, and that's where yeah. I think that um, I like the symbolism and the, the philosophy behind, yeah. behind that. And so, yeah, that's like a, like just like a wonderful teaching. That, uh, and, and Dave, I, I think what you're saying is so important. I want to try to clarify this for your listeners. And that is that toxic, po- toxic positivity is only making room for the positive while avoiding the negative putting a, you know, a stamp of a smiley face, like, oh, how are you doing today? We always say fine. Okay, so it's not acknowledging what is in favor of some reality over there. That's the fantasy of what you're actually experiencing now, hoping that you're going to attract the positive uh, stuff to you. Mm -hmm. So law of attraction does work, but you can't attract what's positive by harboring the negative inside. So, um, what did we say? Radical affirmation. Yeah, so radical affirmation is our capacity to hold and face and be with our negative experiences as much as the, po- as the positive ones and understand that when we say yes to the challenge, when we say yes to what's difficult in ourselves, we're saying yes to the entire universe. And it's almost like when we embrace our shadow, 
our light grows even brighter. And then we can see the light when the sky is the darkest, we see the stars. So it's this notion that, yes, we want to be positive, but not from a superficial place of avoiding the negative. It's always coming from a place of integration. Mm -hmm. And to turn, like our, normally our back is to the light, to the sun, we want to turn to face the sun. And uh, then I think absolutely what you intend will come to be. Like as soon as we got clear about what kind of house we wanted and all that, it dropped out of the sky literally from us because <laughs> it was not available. The house that we were meant to have was not available at the time that we were looking. Mm -hmm. And just before we signed that, that other house, that was still a nice house, but it wasn't exactly what we wanted. This other house became available. So we never really gave up on our intention list. We stayed open to the bigger energy. And then when we saw the opportunity, we acted. I mean, we, pou we pounced on this. <laughs> yeah. You know? yeah. So it, it really does take knowing what you want and you've got to act. And then we want to act like, like it really matters and that there's no wrong choices. There's no wrong decisions. There's only learning. Mm -hmm. And I learned that from my, my jazz experience, you know, because I, I studied to be a jazz pianist. And uh, in jazz, there's, there's no wrong notes, only solos. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I like that. I like that. Yeah, that's, uh, I know you, you, I like your, um, musical analogies throughout the book <laughs> and there's so much truth to life and philosophy as the words like solo and virtuoso and you know so, so many of the mm. yeah that's a, that's a nice we could go off on that tangent but we won't <laughs> um no it's that's a like this whole book has been a joy as I, as I look, look down and, and I have to uh, reiterate to the listeners that it's a, it's a book to be studied and it's not a, um, just read it through and put it on the shelf. It's, there's so, it's so rich with teaching and philosophy and life experience and sort of applicable um, you know, exercises, if you will, of, of the Todd elaborates on his teachings. And there was a, well, so this would be a good opportunity to segue a little bit into your latest offerings that you have. And I know some are related to this book. What's going on with all that? Yeah. Well, um, you know, I've done, I've shifted to an online format. So all my courses are currently online. And um, I have, um, well, you can just go see my online courses. Okay. But in, ter I, I, yeah. in terms of this, this course, um, I, um, it's not on the schedule yet, but I, I hope to do it. I have a course called um, Journey to Unbreakable Wholeness. Mm -hmm. And 
it is taking some of the concepts from this book and then, you know, putting it into a yoga practice uh, with journal writing and a kind of contemplation where we can start to delve into some of these topics and um, find wisdom, find insight, and actually find some freedom by going through uh, the experiences. Like I have a wonderful uh, forgiveness experience Mm -hmm. that I detail out in the book because forgiveness becomes really one of the biggest barriers to opening the heart. Like we, we don't want to forgive because it's, it holds such a protection for us um, that, um, I mean, we think it's a protection, but it really creates a kind of pain when we hold resentment that leads to greater pain. And I talk about that in the, in the chapter in the book that when we're actually able to be vulnerable and open the heart, that's painful too, but that's the pain that heals the pain. And so how do we heal a broken heart? How do we heal a heart that's been hurt and we're holding on to that feeling of betrayal or a feeling of resentment? Well, we have to go into that experience with gentleness and you know, with, expert, with an expert guide to help us navigate where we get stuck. Mm-hmm. So there's a few exercises like that. And so anyway, I, you know, the book is, is being published in just um, a, a couple of weeks. I don't know if it'll be published by the time this podcast is out. Probably it will be. Um, but I do hope to have some um, online, you know, book study classes that go along with, with this for people that want to, you know, read together in a group and do the introspection and the, the, the deeper sadhana, I would say, the deeper spiritual practice of becoming more familiar with um, how, how we approach our, you know, physical, mental, and emotional and spiritual life. Mm-hmm. So. Well, I, I, I can see this would be a great um, City Yoga Book Club book. Like mm. more, more not just like a read it and talk about it, but a, mm. more of a book study, you know, like an ongoing, yeah. ongoing thing. And, yeah. and I knew you had s- something in the works on the um, yeah. breakable wholeness. But well, so for our listeners, www.ashayayoga.com, um, A-S-H-A-Y-A yoga.com is where you find a listing of all Todd's offerings. And that will be all in our podcast notes. So you don't have to remember that. Um, and then, yeah. And I, I just appreciate, you know, having you as a friend and, and having these conversations and uh, just the fact that this, this whole wealth of richness um, I'm pointing to the book <laughs> that's well, the manuscript that's in front of me and uh, that, that you've, you know, been able to develop and create. Um, it speaks a lot of, of your journey and the depth of your own practice to be able to open yourself up to put this on paper and, and, and uh, communicate it so well. I think it's, uh, you know, it's, it's got the all the all the makings of a of a yoga classic, 
So um, I'm excited about it coming out. We'll probably, um, hopefully this will come out probably about around the same time as the book, you know, early June, I think is what we're, yeah. we'll, see, we'll see how, you know, all that unfolds. And, um, and uh, Dave, I wanted to mention one other thing I forgot to mention when you asked me about courses and uh, it's because this course is in the early stages of development, but I'm creating a course that I'm going to launch in the fall called the Ashaya Path Teacher and Leadership Training. And it's a version of my teacher training, but the first three modules are called Ashaya Deepening. And it's for anyone who wants to just deepen their experience of the Tantra, Mm -hmm. the Ashaya Method, the philosophy, um, and also leadership, because I'm incorporating... I mean, I think really to be a yoga teacher, it's also to be a leader and mm-hmm. how to be a leader from the heart. And there's certain skills. I have nine different leadership modules that I'm incorporating into this. Mm-hmm. And then after that, Ashaya Deepening, the course continues for those that want to go on to become a teacher or just go even deeper. I, I know I, I'm going to have a lot of teachers already who just want to sort of deepen their study. It's called Ashaya Awakening. And that takes you further into the studies of the shadow and the light and the leadership training. We have someone coming in to teach social justice and how that relates Mm -hmm. to us as yoga teachers. Mm -hmm. And um, I have a special uh, expertly led uh, 20-hour anatomy of a shy yoga module. Um, And... That's that's going to be taught by a couple of other teachers that are really wonderful. So I'd say of, of all the courses, for those that really want to take a deeper dive, that look for the Ashaya Path course. And that's the one I would recommend. Okay. And that will be fall of 2021? Yep. Yep. Okay. End of September is when it starts. Okay. Very good. So that's – well, you, you're staying busy. <laughs> <laughs> I am. I know. Uh, and – and you are you still have regular weekly online classes, correct? That um, I I have some. I do a couple a month now of some free Facebook classes, so you can catch me there. And um, I've a lot of my courses span for like a five day period or a ten day period. Mm-hmm. I have one coming up that's a, a ten day therapeutic course. And then I always, I always offer a, a course in the summer that has three different components to it. And it ends with a 15-day Pillars of Peace. Um, the Pillars of Peace is really the Ashaya morning sadhana practice, where I teach mantra, meditation, and pranayama, and a little bit of asana. And um, I do maybe two or three of those a year. And I usually offer those as a 30-day challenge. So uh-huh. like 30 days of morning practice all in a row. And uh, I do that probably two or three months of the year. Nice. Yeah. So yeah, that's my my <laughs> my growing portfolio. <laughs> um, I'm yeah. definitely I really enjoy what I'm doing, and I have a really a real deep passion. Like now, I feel like it's my time to really give back, mm-hmm. and um, I'm very excited about that. Yeah. So. Well, and you have so much to offer and that, and I think that'll this, um, particularly the times that we're coming in with 
um, varying levels of reentry for people from varying levels of isolation or and, and maybe mainly just new habits of maybe being on a screen um, all day or a big part of their their work life is is not um, in person any longer and trend, some people are transitioning back to that and so this everyone is grappling with different levels of change and, and uncertainty and that sounds like all the the programming you're offering and the teachings will just give a, a, a great foundation for people to build on their own resilience and their own um, process work in the yeah. changing turbulent times that have been yeah. been behind us and are before us. So uh, timing is good, and and you're such a wonderful teacher that um, I'm excited for to uh, participate in some of it myself, you know, I, I just right. reading the book. I'm like, Oh, I, I just need to go do some studying with Todd. And uh, <laughs> I, uh, you know, I love study and uh, mm. that, that path of, of knowledge. Um, and then sometimes, sometimes I need to step away from it and be experiential. I mean, it's all experiential, but um, yeah. yeah, you know, so I recognize there's a lot of, depth in your book and i'm excited for it to hit the press and i i feel honored that you shared it with me and and that uh that we got to have these conversations and um and as we said earlier the, the book's over 400 pages and it's very rich and it's very there's a lot of life experience in there we have, didn't get a chance to touch on but there's also this um like you did with Shiva and the, the Nataraj and the, the different, you know, Todd knows how to really break down some uh, concepts and symbolism in the practical contemporary terms that make it useful in our own evolution um, as spiritual beings and yogis on the path. Mm. So very good. Um, well, I think we're about there. Is there any parting words you'd like to say to our audience before we sign off? No, just thank you, Dave, for, for being here and doing this podcast and bringing these teachings out to more and more people. And um, I really enjoyed talking with you and you asked good, interesting questions. And I, I do resonate with that part of you that loves to study and and learn. So may we continue to learn together and support each other. And I uh, just offer my light and my love to all the listeners and um, all the practitioners of yoga. Let's keep going. Let's continue to build a very strong foundation so we can hold all the beauty as well as the challenges that life is presenting for us mm -hmm. and maintain our center in the heart where we can make our, our best decisions and bring more light and love into this world. Yes. So well put. Thank you so much. You're welcome, Dave. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Yoga Voice, brought to you by City Yoga School of Yoga and Health, where we are committed to exploring how yoga inspires and transforms. Find out more at www.cityyoga.biz. 
That's C-I-T-Y-O-G-A dot biz. Special thanks to our producer, Brian Sims, for his audio expertise. 